I don't, I don't know what's happened to my could you wait just a minute please? I don't know what's happened to my phone Hello, and welcome back to Real Seekers. I'm your host, Dale, the Real Seeker. And today we have uh, a very special event. Um, we're continuing on with my Shroud Wars panel review shows. And um, I'm bringing back um, a couple of uh, people who've been on before. Um, so in the first place, we have Hugh Ferry, who's who's the representing the Shroud Skeptics. Hey, Hugh. And uh, all, I, how was your trip to Australia there? Oh, it was brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. And uh, about as far removed from Shroud studies as it was possible to get, really. <laughs> you need a break every so often, right? So, <laughs> all right, cool. And uh, also returning to the show, we have Dr. Mark Guskin, who, who's um, been on the show before and uh, ready. How, how, are you, how have you been there, Mark? Yeah, good. I'm fine. Um, I've been... Uh, since the last year, I mean, big news is that I was robbed in Barcelona and lost my wallet and all the money and cards and ID and everything and had to replace it all. But apart from that, fine. Oh, man. That, okay. Well, that's, uh, yeah, <laughs> that's not good. But hopefully we'll have a, a better time uh, today. I know that you're a bit of a sparrer. You like to spar uh, with me, Ferry, there. So we'll have a good time. Um, all right. Well, we also have a couple of newbies to the Shroud Wars, people who have never been on joining us today. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll start. Uh, Pam Pam Moon, welcome to the show, Pam. Thank you so much. That was really kind of you to invite me. I'm sorry, I'm having a bit of technical difficulties trying to get a file to you. But uh, so if I feel a bit distracted, that'll be why. But if I don't succeed, I'll just go without the file. So 
Thanks, Louis. No nice to be here. Awesome. Great to have you on board. Um, and obviously also Jack Markwart. Um, hey, Jack, how's it going? Hello, oh, Dale. It's good to be here. Awesome. All right, cool. So obviously uh, something that I always do before we get into today's topic, which is going to be looking at the evidence for the historicity of the shroud, um, you know, from the second century or first century all the way up to 1204, um, as well as looking at that gap period between 1204 to 1350s when the shroud showed up in Louis, France. Um, but the first thing before we get into that, I want to turn it straight over to my two new guests just to kind of introduce the audience as to who you are and maybe a little bit about your faith journeys or how you got involved in the Shroud. So, uh, Jack, I'll, I'll start with you. Do you want to just introduce the audience to who you are? Well, um, I uh, attended Rutgers University. Uh, from there, I went to Albany Law School. I graduated uh, with uh, a Juris Doctor degree, cum laude. Uh, then I entered into the practice of law. While I was uh, practicing law, I maintained my interest in history. I did a lot of reading in history. It's always been a passion of mine. And uh, in 1986, I received a calendar for the year. It was uh, put out by the Holy Shroud Guild. And that was really the first time that I became acquainted with the uh, Shroud of Turin. And um, as a person interested in history, uh, I kind of wondered after looking at the photos and descriptions they had, uh, what the history was. It, it seemed to start in France and there was nothing more to that. So uh, I contacted the Holy Shroud Guild and uh, they put me in touch with a woman by the name of Dorothy Crispino. Uh, she was the editor and publisher of Shroud Spectrum International at that time. Uh, and uh, we discussed uh, my interest and when she saw that it, it was uh, you know, very much focused on history, she suggested that I get a hold of Ian Wilson's book, which he had published in 1978. Uh, and I did, and I read it through, and I was particularly interested in the his, history sections that he had there. And I kind of came away with it, with the idea that he had made a good case for uh, identifying the shroud with the uh, image of Odessa at that time. I was not really that impressed by the early shroud history, you know, the first 500 years. Uh, he, which in, he basically relied on the Abgar legend. There really wasn't much history there to satisfy me. Uh, and also um, at the end of it, there was a, uh, a theory that the Shroud had been with the uh, Templars. And um, that seemed to be weak to me. So when I spoke to Dorothy again, she suggested that I you know, do some research, uh, write a paper, and I decided I would start with those two areas of the Shroud's history. I got started on that, and then in 1988, the carbon dating, and it seemed to um, kind of blow up the whole idea of the Shroud uh, having a history, you know, back to the first century. So uh, I was very busy with my law practice. I put it aside for a few years, uh, got interested again uh, in about 1996. Uh, after some questions had been raised about the carbon dating, uh, finished my paper, 
uh, and it was presented uh, at the uh, Nice conference uh, in 1997. Uh, that paper had to do with the, raising the possibility that the shroud was with the Cathars in southern France uh, during the so-called missing years between 1204 and uh, 1355. Uh, from there, I spent the next uh, 20 years uh, writing a series of papers, uh, always turning my attention to uh, either topics that I was interested in or portions of the shroud's history that, you know, kind of remained a mystery and uh, had those papers presented at international conferences. Uh, many of them were published uh, with different uh, acts of uh, conferences. Um, and basically by 2010, when I appeared at the last conference I appeared at, which was in Pasco, Washington, uh, I had pretty much put together what I thought was um, the entire trail uh, from the first century to the 15th century. Uh, at that point, I was a little bit burned out uh, with it, and I took a break for a little while. And I had a number of people say, uh, having a hard time finding some of the work you did on the various papers. I know that you worked on this, so why don't you uh, collect it and put it all in a book? So that's what I did in 2021. I uh, published a book. It's called The Hidden History of the Shroud of Turing. Um, and uh, it's uh, available uh, on Amazon. Uh, along the way, I changed my views uh, somewhat on the history of the Shroud. Um, uh, a good part of it I can attribute really to Mark Guskin. I uh, got his book in 2009, and uh, it was just a wonderful book, but it did two things. It kind of uh, made me refocus on the Shroud's history and look at it in a different way. Uh, and the other thing was that uh, it was written as an academic work, which means it was heavily footnoted with uh, academic um, citations. And uh, in my experience with the Shroud at that time, uh, I was largely reading uh, documents put out by uh, people who were just syndonologists um, and uh, they were not academics. And truthfully, it kind of bothered me along the way that uh, there was not enough academic research that was being introduced into Shroud Studies. And I found a lot of these um, citations that Mark uh, had to be interesting. I, I followed them up. I, I started getting into reading Byzantine journals and uh, things like that. And it, it changed my idea uh, of what um, probably happened uh, with the Shroud over its history. So, you know, that, uh, you know grateful to him and uh, uh, I think it's one of the things that's lacking in shroud history uh, today, and that it's 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 not enough academically oriented. There's too many people writing about the history who are not looking into the academic journals, and there seems to be an attitude that um, academics, you know, are against the authenticity of the shroud, so we don't want to read them. Uh, you know, they're either obnoxious or they're crazy or something like that but there is a, a ton of material in there that is helpful uh, even to those who would argue the authenticity of the shroud. A lot of these uh, academics are skeptics and they don't realize that the, the information they're putting points to authenticity, but nevertheless, uh, the information is there. So that, that's been my background with the shroud and uh, I try to keep active with it. I try to read what I can in the blogs 
see what the new developments are. Um, but I'm not sure I'm going to be doing some writing for a little while now because I've been doing it for over 25 years. Awesome. Awesome. Well, great to have you on board as part of the Shroud Wars here. So, all right, cool. Well, with that said, I want to turn it straight over to my next new guest, Pam Moon, to uh, just kind of introduce us as to who you are, uh, give us a bit about your faith journey and how you got involved in the Shroud. And just so you know, you have to, there's a bit of feedback. So I muted everyone when Jack was speaking. So just unmute yourself if when you want to speak there, Pam. All right. Okay. If you, okay. So I'll, I'll, oops. there you go. I've unmuted. Wait a minute. Yep, there you go. Okay, fantastic. Can you hear me? Okay, yep. I'll start with an academic background in the same way that Jack did. So um, I, I studied English and history at university, and then I um, I trained as a, as a nurse um, and uh, did an MSc in health studies. And then after that, I went to Oxford. I was privileged to go to Oxford and do the ordination training there. Um, so I've got this eclectic mix of history, English, science a little bit um and what interests me the most is theology now so um i i found out about the shroud because my mother saw it when she was a young woman in 1954 i think um group captain leonard cheshire who'd been on the um plane which had dropped an, a, a nuclear bomb on nagasaki um he had a great devotion to the shroud and he took a copy of it around the country and i think my mother saw it and she was so overwhelmed by it. She sort of remembers walking up three steps and looking at it and saying, what is that? And it stayed with her all her life and it brought her to faith. I became a, a Christian at 13 uh, with the Arthur Blessed crusade. He was going around the world um, with a cross. I think he went around the world twice. Um, and then uh, my mum got me the books uh, by Ian Wilson that Jack mentioned, and also uh, the film by David Rolfe, uh, The Silent Witness. And I kind of started to learn a bit about the Shroud and absolutely loved what I saw. And then along came the carbon date. And I think when you know something about the Shroud, you're suspicious about the carbon date because it's such an extraordinary thing. Anyway, in 2002, I started doing talks on the Shroud. And in 2008, I thought I'd buy what my mum had seen that had so influenced her. And I wrote to Barry Schwartz and he very kindly wrote straight back to me the same day. And I'd said, could I have a shroud? And he said, yes, I could. And I could also have a full-sized replica of the shroud. He'd got four at the time, um, and I managed to have one of them. And of course, it was too big to take to talks. It's 15 feet long. So I put together an exhibition, and we did it. My husband's an Anglican vicar. We did an exhibition in my husband's church. And there you get the little miracles of God. So the man who is currently the Cardinal of England, Archbishop Vincent Nichols, a very God-filled man, happened to have time on his hands. He happened to come to the exhibition and he opened doors for us. And uh, we went to, to various places, including uh, Westminster Cathedral, Dublin Catholic Cathedral and other places. So I, I've met Mark and Hugh at the Jalsa Salana, the Muslim event, uh, in which is an extraordinary event where Barry Schwartz has come to talk and uh, lots of Shroud scholars from all over the world and there are thousands of Muslims. Um, so it's been a, a really fascinating journey with the Shroud. I've learned so much about it and, and then started to do some research on things like the carbon date 
and some of the history surrounding the shroud, particularly a manuscript called the, um, the Illustrated Chronicle of John Skylitzes. Awesome. All right. Cool. So uh, just before we get into to the topics, Pam, I, I mentioned that uh, you were going to be on the show and uh, a friend of yours, apparently, Annette Cloutier, kind of asked me to just kind of ask you about your experience going to the Oxford Lab in 2016, if you apparently had a, a story about that. Yeah, actually, actually, yes, yes. So um, in 2012, I wrote, I went to a conference that David Rolfe ran with the British British Society for the Turin Trad. Mark's been, and few have both been editors of that. The current editor is now Michael Kowalski. And, uh, and David said this thing that just stuck with me. He said that the carbon date is like a dead hand on people's interest in the shroud. And he's right. You know, so people just say, oh, it's a fake without looking at it in any depth. So in 2014, I put a freedom of information request on Oxford University to provide their photographs of the sample that they tested. And I sent those photographs to a, a textile expert called Donna Campbell from Thomas Ferguson Irish Lenin, very, very erudite woman. Um, and she looked at all the photographs and came to the conclusion that the sample was stitched and repaired. It was orange, she said, it was. It looked like it had been dyed. Um, and certainly the close-up pictures, pictures which sadly Oxford misclassified at the time, um, but now recognise that it is the shroud. The, the close-up shows image, evidence of black stitching, of um, what I believe is, is uh, Madarut dye and gum tragacanth. It's covered in bubbles of gum. Um, and looking at it, if you compare it with, say, Mark Evans's pictures of the shroud from the Sturp examination in 1978, they look completely different. Um, so I, I think if that was the sample they tested, then it, it's meaningless because they didn't understand what, was, what they were testing, the different contaminants that had been added. Gotcha. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, without any further ado, um, I do want to get into today's topics about, you know, how do we know that the shroud didn't just pop onto the scene in the 1350s? So um, first thing I want to do is let's let's start with the first topic, this the missing years or this gap period, you know, where the shroud could have been from 1204 to the 1350s when it shows up in Leary, France. And I guess on this front, I'll start um, with Mark. Uh, Mark, do you want to give your case about the shroud where it was during the missing years? And uh, just so you know, you have to unmute yourself again. Yeah, uh, I'll, I can unmute you then. So there you go. Okay, well, um, actually, just a couple of comments. I'm going to be quite quick on this one for the simple reason that it's not something that I've studied or researched in any great depth. I've read all the different theories. Um, one of the best is in an Italian book that's not been translated um, by Alessandro, and I don't remember his surname. I know he's written a couple of times in the BST newsletter. I probably reviewed his book when I was editor. Alessandro, I don't know. Uh, well, the book's called 1204, The uh, Incomplete Crusade in English, but I don't think the book exists in English. Um, 
do I have an opinion about where the shroud was in those years? No. What I do have an opinion about is if you accept and you define this period of lost years, 1204 to the 1350s, that is like taking for granted that the shroud and the image of Edessa are one and the same thing, which is fine, uh, but a lot of people don't realize that. Yeah, that's the guy. That You got it, Hugh. Thanks very much for, for that. Um, in other words, you know, 1204 was the Fourth Crusade when the Venetians and the Western troops decided to attack and sack and loot Constantinople because there was much more to be taken than there was in the Holy Land. Not, not one of the high points of Western Christianity's history, let's say, but very human. Um, in fact, once when I was on Mount Athos uh, doing research there in the, in the Greek Orthodox monasteries, in the libraries and the archives they have there, uh, one of the monks almost accused me and said it was my fault. And I said, well, it was about, you know, 800 years ago. Um, I wasn't there and my parents weren't and my grandparents weren't. And he said, yes, but all you Westerners were, which I found quite amusing. Um, but all I'm, all I'm saying is that if you do define this period as the lost period, A, you're taking a big step in saying that the shroud definitely existed before 1204, which if you believe it did, that's fine. There are plenty of arguments in favor of it, but it's not something that has been um, historically proven, like saying, you know, well, we know it existed from the 1350s on. It's not the same. There are plenty of signs that point towards it, but if I'm if I can separate sort of Mark the Shroudy and Mark the Historian, I would have to say that defining that period, 1204 to the 1350s, is not good history, okay? Uh, because it's taking for granted things that a lot of people don't agree with. And I think that if you're going to define that period as the lost period, you would need definitive proof of and when I say definitive, I mean really definitive, that nobody could argue against, of the shroud being around before that. Now, there's plenty, as we'll see later on, plenty of sources that talk about the burial shroud of Christ existing before them. There are sources that suggest and almost confirm that that shroud, the burial shroud of Christ that existed before 1204, had bloodstains on it, and even that it had an image on it. But the difficult question, does that mean that the shroud in those references is the one kept today in Turin? You can't guarantee it. I think it is, but I know that as a historian, I cannot provide definitive proof of that. Awesome. So Very I would cool. just be wary about defining this period as the lost period. Um, it's just as lost as anything before that. Gotcha. Perfect. Uh, Jack, I, I want to turn it to you and hang on, I'll just unmute you. Um, this was uh, your idea to insert this section about this so-called gap period. So, yeah, what's your take on where the Shroud was during this time? 
Well, um, I came at this originally uh, from Ian Wilson's book. And uh, he made some what I thought were good points, which were more broad. And that is that uh, it was likely, he said, that the shroud was held during this period by a group. And he happened to select uh, the Templars. Um, when I wrote my first paper, I kind of that philosophy and looked for another group and hit upon the Cathars. But uh, in, with the years that have gone by and I've looked at this, I always uh, have come to the conclusion now that the approach has always been wrong. Uh, Wilson from the beginning and a lot of people written on this uh, go to Constantinople when they try to say, well, who was in Constantinople and the shroud disappeared, who took the shroud? And you can find a number of theories <clears throat> in which uh, people are uh, attributed with uh, taking the shroud at that time. Uh, Mr. Piano mentioned by Mark, uh, he put out a couple of papers in the area of 2008, 2010, in which he promoted this Athan Deloach theory that uh, a knight uh, in the crusade uh, obtained the shroud in some way, took it to Athens, uh, sent it from Athens uh, back to France, and somehow it made its way uh, through the uh, inheritance process into the second wife of Geoffrey de Charnay, Jean de Bergen. Um, there's a lot really that I think uh, is wrong with that, not the, the least of which is that the inheritance did not move through the, the women of the family at that time, the Ray family, it moved through the, the males at that time. So Jean de Vergy would not have been an inheritor of the shroud. It would have been uh, one of the succeeding Dukes of Ray or Lords of Ray. Uh, but you know, uh, a lot of people don't get into that. There are books that deal with this. Instead, I've come to the idea that the process is you have to go to the end and what transpired. Uh, this got into the hands of Geoffrey de Charnay. Um, and you really have to show then how uh, Geoffrey obtained it. And then you have to consider the fact that when it was ex exhibited and when it, nothing was said about its past. You really have to uh, look at uh, why uh, Jeffrey de Charnay did not talk about the past of the shroud and where he got it at that time. And so uh, there is a theory that somewhat I think is correct, and that is the theory that it was put out by um, Dubarl in uh, 1998. Uh, you see it being promoted uh, Mario Latandresi quite often, and this is that the shroud uh, was you know, put in the uh, reliquary for the Mandillion at its way to Paris, and it was sitting in the Saint-Chapelle for 100 years. And then for some reason, it's not really clearly defined. The king at that time, uh, Philip VI, uh, gave the, uh, the, the cloth to Geoffrey de Charnay. Instead, I think there's something that a lot of people miss the years, or at least miss the significance of, and that is that Geoffrey de Charnay is the grandson of Jean de Joinville. Now, Jean de Joinville 
is was the closest confidant to King Louis the Ninth, and King Louis the Ninth is the greatest collector of Byzantine relics that was ever known. And so it would make sense if some way King Louis uh, obtained the shroud as he did 42 other, uh, I think it was 42 other, maybe even 26 other relics from his cousin, uh, Baldwin the Samper of Constantinople, that would bring the shroud to Paris and it would bring it into at least the presence of uh, Jean de Joinville. And then it would only be a matter of uh, why did the shroud then get to Jeffrey de Charnay? And the theory that I, that I have that I, I put in my book is that the shroud was not taken from uh, Constantinople in 1204. There are actually uh, literary uh, works that uh, support the idea that it was there in 1207, 1208. And uh, I believe that what transpired is it stayed in the uh, treasury uh, of the Byzantine emperors who were now French uh, for a period of years. It was part of the inventory uh, of relics that uh, Baldwin II had in the 1230s when he ran out of money to the emperor, empire and he started selling them virtually to Louis IX. There is a historical incident, again, that um, has that it's not been brought into shroud history that often, but it's a, a bona fide uh, historical fact. And that is that uh, Baldwin II when he ran out of money in 1248, he could not go to Louis because Louis was out on crusade in Egypt at the time. And so this um, scheme that they had had up to that time of pledging relics and, and Louis redeeming them, he could not do that with Louis away and spending his money uh, on the crusade. So what did, what Baldwin did is he borrowed all this money that he needed to stay in power. And he basically mortgaged his son he had an only son, uh, Philip was his name, and he uh, allowed the um, uh, Venetian lenders who were giving him the money to take Philip to Venice and keep him virtually imprisoned uh, until, he, until Baldwin paid back this um, debt that he had. Baldwin never did, and Louis is out on crusade till something like 1254-55. He comes home and he becomes interested in the welfare of Philip, and he gets involved in negotiations for Philip's release for over a period of several years. And suddenly, uh, Philip is released, and when Philip is released, he becomes a ward of King Louis IX. Well, at that point, the debt would be something in the neighborhood of about five million. You know, it would take. Uh, you know, someone with an awful lot of money to um, to accomplish that, and apparently uh, the documents would indicate, and a lot, and there are historians who feel that the person who really got Philip released was King Louis the Ninth. And, and so, why did Louis? What did he get? What was the quid pro quo for that? I believe it was the shroud. Uh, Baldwin was on the verge of being overthrown in uh, Constantinople. He did get overthrown in 1261. 
And I believe that um, he, in return for Louis paying this king's ransom for his son, he turned the shroud over to King Louis. Now, uh, again, uh, the problem with that for Louis was that I think he handled that traction virtually for himself. He was involved in it personally. He wrote a lot of the letters. And I don't think he considered the fact that the way that that was done constituted the sin of simony. You know, paying, uh, virtually paying consideration for a relic. He had done that before, essentially, but it was done very cleverly because Baldwin would um, borrow money. Uh, he would pledge these relics. He would default on the loan. But before they could, the relics could be seized, he had a, what they call a right of redemption. And Louis would come in and using the right of redemption, he would get the relics. So it looked like he was a rescuer. He didn't rescue a relic. I think you're you're kind of roboting out a bit. Uh, just hang on. Are you still? Can everyone else can hear me? I can hear you, Dale. But Jack I'm was breaking. I'm not towards you. Okay. Jack, are you are back, back now? Yeah, it yeah. looks like you're back now. All right, cool. Sorry. Uh, okay. So I think that once this was realized and, and the commission of the, of the sin of simony was something that could have cost um, uh, loss to Louis. And he was, as you know, later on, uh, considered saintly and declared a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. I believe he turned the shroud over to his most trusted advisor, Jean de Joinville, who then took the shroud to Joinville, where his castle was. And he held the shroud for a period of years. And then he ultimately um, gave the shroud first to his daughter and then to his grandson, who was his youngest grandson at the time. And I believe that the shroud was kept in the castle in Joinville until Jeffrey decided that he wanted to bring it for exhibition in Leroy. And at that point, that's when the shroud uh, was brought to Leroy. Now, that is a theory in which would totally explain why, one, nothing could be discussed. Uh, not want to get into the issues involving Louis and his purchase of the relic. Um, and uh, it would uh, you know, explain why Pope Innocent VI allowed the exhibitions to take place. Because according to um, the um, uh, I think it was a canon that was adopted in 1215 at the church council. Uh, you could not exhibit a relic. You could not put a relic up for veneration unless it was approved by the Pope. So Pope Innocent VI must have approved the exhibitions of Shroud in the array in 1355. That's, that's rarely discussed. It's treated mostly as if the Shroud exhibits just took place because somebody wanted them to take place. But they would not have taken place without papal approval. And I think that what happened was that Innocent VI was advised of these circumstances by Jeffrey. He approved the exhibitions, but he uh, imposed silence, perpetual silence, on the past of the Shroud at that time. And that's why today we don't know 
Mark say exactly what happened during the missing years. I believe it's as good as a theory as as any that I've read, and I've reviewed 12 of them uh, in my book. All right, awesome. So I want to turn it uh, to Pam to just kind of give your opening case. What do you think is going on with the Shroud during this 1204 to 1350s period? Not an area I've, subject, I've studied at any great length, uh, so I wouldn't necessarily want to give a, an opinion on it especially, but there are a few things when I was thinking about it before. Um, I think the historian um, Barbara Frail has been given access to the Vatican archives where she's um, discovered documents which would suggest that the Knights Templar did have possession of the Shroud at certain points. Now, um, the, the historian, a friend of mine, Juliet Faith, has believed that um, because the Knights Templar were largely British and French and uh, they were the Crusaders, um, she believes that, um, and I think Ian Wilson has argued from something called the Temple Coombe Panel, that it may have come to England at some point. Do, do you know the, the, the great poem by William Brake, which goes... Um, which is Jerusalem, and did those feet in ancient times walk on England's mountains green? And and was that holy? Was the Holy Lamb of God on England's pleasant mountains seen? And the and the answer to both of those is probably no. Jesus didn't come to Glastonbury um, or to the West Country um, with Joseph of Arimathea. But there's there's a really strong tradition in places like Somerset of um, of the presence of Jesus being there, a sovereign cloth being there and the, the next line goes and did those that countenance divine upon our uh, i can't remember the, but did the countenance of christ come to england uh, maybe 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 there's a that, it, that they took it around that they hid it um in in 1307 jacques de Molay, who was the last grand master of the uh, knights templar was um was arrested and in 1314 he was he was burnt at the stake and he, the, the Knights Templar had all sorts, they were accused of all sorts of things, one of which was they venerated the image of a man who had two heads and four feet. Now, uh, of a cloth, that, that, that's in some ways a good description of the shroud. There's the front and the back of the head. There are four feet, if you count the front of the feet and the back of the feet. And they hid it because, you know, on exhibition i see a lot of people respond to the shroud i have which is just a photograph and people stand in front of it and they weep um there's a there's a connection that the image has to people um that is beyond art now if i if jacques de molay had owned it and feared for its safety of course he would have hidden it of course he would have, you know, and I think he's now been exonerated by the Vatican um, as not being a heretic worthy of being burnt at the stake. Um, so I, I think I think that's a probable route. Um, but I, I say I don't really know an awful lot about it. All right, fair enough. And last but not least, I'll turn it over to Hugh. I'll just unmute you there. Oh, if you can unmute yourself for some reason, it's not. Yeah, right. here we go. Uh, yeah, what's your take on the the missing years and some of the theories there? Well, of course, if you, if you I mean, as as you can imagine, if you think the shroud was made in about 1340, 
then, or, or it's very unlikely that it had any missing years. However, um, let's assume for a moment that, uh, that we're looking for, for some evidence. Um, I think it's very easy to construct all sorts of possible routes. Yes, it could have gone to uh, the Saint-Chapelle in Paris and have been given to uh, Geoffrey de Charny. It could perhaps have derived from some distant relative, although Geoffrey de Charny, uh, the Knight Templar, um, existed, he was, as far as we can ascertain, no relation at all of Geoffrey de Charny, the first owner of the Shroud. And um, the other interesting thing I find is that I'm not sure that Geoffrey de Charny, the first, um, actually knew anything about the Shroud. There's, there's nothing about the Shroud in his um, making of his chapel at Leary. There's nothing about the Shroud in Henry de Poitiers' conversations with him about what a good job he's done in erecting the chapel. Um, and the first reference that we have um, to the Shroud belonging to somebody uh, is, of course, uh, Pierre Darcy, who says it belongs to the, it was sharked up by the Dean of Leary and his chums. Um, so, I mean, I think an, all, an awful lot of, of possibilities, Mark's possibility, uh, Jack's possibility, Pam's possibility, they're all possibles, uh, but they've got to be supported with rather more evidence before we can plump for one or the other, um, I think. That's all, that's all I can say, really. All right, cool. Fair enough. Well, what I want to do at this point, just for the next little bit, uh, before we get into what the second topic is, just open it up to discussion about this gap period. Does anyone want to engage one of the other people in what they said or inquire about it? No? Uh, well, <clears throat> if I, <clears throat> I think if I can follow Jack's idea is that Henry uh, gave the shroud to... Jeffrey, is that more or less right? As some sort of reward for something? Uh, Henry? King Henry? No, no. I I, I believe that um, I believe that King Louis the Ninth turned uh, uh, yeah. the shroud over to John de Joinville. John de, Voy de Joinville was his longtime uh, compatriot, geographer. Yeah. Uh, Joinville uh, wanted to provide for the ongoing care of the shroud. He gave it to his youngest daughter, Marguerite. She is the wife of Geoffrey Charney's father, Charney's father. And then uh, they in turn, or, uh, uh, or even uh, Jean de Joinville, provided for it to go to Geoffrey. He would be his youngest grandson. He would hold on to it for the longest period of time. That's how I believe that Jeffrey got it. And uh, if the, uh, I think the, uh, the Pope um, in um, something like uh, 1389 or was some sort of um, a bull that was issued in which he basically recited that the shroud came to Jeffrey Charney basically as a gift, as a, in a, in a legal way. And certainly uh, inheriting it um, in the manner that he did would would constitute, um, you know, legal acquisition of the trail. Yeah, I, I think that was a legal deposition by Marguerite um, de Charny is, is where that, that expression, um, whichever got confused about whether 
uh, foot meant fire or the recently deceased somebody or other. <clears throat> but right. um, yeah, right. I just find it odd that if it had been in the, the Dishani family, um, well, of course, evidence, you know, uh, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but there ought to have been some mention amongst the documentation, um, especially regarding the founding of the chapel, uh, that the, the, the shroud was um, amongst its treasures. I would have thought. Well, well, yeah, sorry, again, uh, what I would say. Well, uh, uh, yeah, okay, Mark, go ahead. And then, Jack, you can come back. Yeah. Uh, just to say that, I mean, Hugh, you know, the argument from silence is not oh, really. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it can reinforce something maybe at some point. But, I mean, the famous example that people use with Herodotus, the Greek historian, who went to Egypt, describes the pyramids, um, says he walked all around, but doesn't mention the Sphinx. Does that mean it wasn't <laughs> yeah. there? No, mm. it doesn't. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but, you know, the argument from silence is never definitive. It's always tricky. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I agree. I'll follow that. I'll do that. Okay, Jack, sorry. You go ahead now. No, that's okay. I, I'm just... Uh... Uh, just go back to something I said originally, and that is that um, I, I'd like to hear maybe from Hugh because I, I haven't heard this, uh, you know, discussed. And that is, uh, what about the idea that uh, under the canon of the Lateran Council in 1215, a relic, a new relic, could not be exhibited with without direct papal approval? What is your view on what really happened with the exhibition? Not getting into who uh, sponsored it. Was it Jeffrey? Was it his wife? Was it before Jeffrey's death? But, but regardless of that, papal approval would have had to be obtained. Is it your belief that uh, papal approval was not obtained and it was just overlooked? Or papal approval was obtained and if so, how did he obtain it? Why did Pope Innocent VI allow this relic to be venerated in Leary for however number of years it was venerated? Uh, well, well, we don't know how long it was venerated for as the shroud, but I think it, it's extraordinary that if indeed it was... Um, if it was first exhibited, I believe it was first exhibited in, in probably in 1356, uh, after uh, Jeffrey right. Deshani had died. And I don't think it was authorized right. by the Pope because it had it, if it if it had been, then there was no way that it would have been suppressed. And yet we discover that uh, it, it was perhaps exhibited for two or three years and then it was suppressed. Um, according to uh, Darcy, of course, it, it was suppressed by um, Henry de Poitiers. But even if Darcy's um, even if Darcy's letter is, is meaningless, we still find no mention of the shroud until it's re, uh, re exhibited in the 1380s and 90s, um, when it, it's very specifically not exhibited as the genuine shroud of christ 
Um, and this is what drives Jeffrey mad. Uh, not what drives Darcy mad in that Jeffrey is publishing the shroud as um, not the genuine shroud, but he is surrounding it with all the panoply, liturgical panoply with candles and capes and all the rest of it, as if it was the genuine shroud. But I'm certain that if there had been um, papal verification of it, somebody would have known and somebody would have said and said, look, we can tell it's real. We've got a certificate to prove it. But there's no, I mean, even if they'd lost the certificate, they'd have said that there was a certificate to prove it. But there's no mention of any authorization of it at all. So I suspect that the first time uh, it was exhibited, and this is why I don't think it was Jeffrey Deshami, because I think he was a very honorable chap. The first time it was exhibited, it was immediately suppressed because there was no justification for it. And um, I mean, I dare say you haven't read any of my works on the subject, but yes, I mention Canon 82 many times. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's Canon 62 from the uh, Lateran Camp. 62. Canon 82 is... Oh, that, yeah. So, yeah, sorry, I was thinking of 82 of the Quinney States Castle. No, wrong one. 62, that's the one that says that yeah. every yeah. Um, every relic must be verified by the Pope. I think yeah. Cam was trying to say something there, so... Yeah, go ahead. Well, if I just want... Uh, oh, okay. Uh, I, I, was, I was going to just give an, ex sorry, an explanation of why... Um, it could have been hidden, why people were cautious about it. Um, one of the reasons when I first started doing this, I can remember saying um, to a very eminent priest who came that one of the reasons I think, I think it's genuine is because of the nakedness. We know from St. John that Jesus was naked on the cross, um, that they divided his clothes, his undergarments. Uh, you know, he was naked on the cross. This is the naked image of God incarnate, if you think through how the medieval mind thought about Jesus um, and the, the, how they thought about the blood of Jesus, the precious blood of Jesus, you know, this, this is a bit of a mind-blowing thing for them to have. And I'm sure that they must have struggled to know quite what to do with it. We're very familiar with it now. And, and in some ways, as a, as a society, we've lost the fear of God that they would have had in the Middle Ages. Um, so... I think that there are reasons why it was hidden. Um, that's just my personal view. I would just add to all of that, that I think we have to be very, very careful when we talk about um, papal authorization, church regulations, church rules, going back in time, Jewish regulations, Jewish rules, because we all tend to forget the human side of it. I think I said on the previous episode I took part in, if every believing church-going Catholic obeyed every single church law, then most families would have anywhere between 12 and 15 children. But they don't. Um, people pick and choose. Um, there are humans involved in this. A rule made in the 12th century or whenever was not universally applied, uh, especially to a small distant parish in France, um, if they even knew about it. Um, uh, we do tend to think 
that in the medieval and ancient world that communication was okay we all know it's not instant it wasn't instant that there was no internet but it was so deficient that um very often you know there were so many outlying churches that had no idea what the pope had authorized or not and nobody in the area around them knew what the pope had authorized or not um so it's just as a historian we have to be so careful with our terminology and our assumptions of what life was like in those times um i mean today look at the differences that there are in every single church low church high church medium church people want to say mass in latin others say that's terrible some believe in this others believe in that it's always been like that um not everybody has always followed the rules issued by the vatican strictly and just because it's a ancient or medieval world we shouldn't assume that they did then either they were still human then so that just complicates things even more because it means you can doubt absolutely everything but that <laughs> unfortunately is what history is like um it's like when you know i don't know if i mentioned this before um a doctor examines i don't know uh the body of christ according to the shroud well yes but that doctor doesn't necessarily know anything about roman punishment um it it was a different world so yeah. still is Pam, I saw it it leaves everything so yeah go ahead pam can, can I just add to that? Uh, can I just add to that that um, if yeah. it did go through the Knights Templar, then you know Jack Demolly had been excommunicated um, as a heretic. You know, so uh, why would they advertise um, the cloth that they had if they did? Well, the Venetians you know I mean? were all. If, if it would lead to excommunication. The Venetians were all excommunicated. Sorry? The Venetians were all excommunicated for doing what they did on the Fourth Crusade until the Pope saw some money coming in and then, then he lifted the excommunication. Yes. Um, it didn't yes. stop yes. people. Yes. So do you think, doing, Mark, Mark, do you think that there was... So just because the Pope excommunicated somebody... Mark, do you think that there was a... Do I think... It's, so I, I just think, do you think that if, if the Pope excommunicated the, the, the Crusaders of the Fourth Crusade, yeah. then admitting to what they had, had looted, was not necessarily going to be high in their agenda? So if he excommunicated the Crusaders... If, 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 the, if, the, if the Crusaders were excommunicated, then why would they admit to what they'd stolen? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it would just exacerbate. Why would they admit it? Because money is very powerful and always has been throughout history. Uh, you look at not everybody and not at every single time, but the explanation for most events in history is money. Very unfortunate and it doesn't give us a very, uh, the same as history today. Most of what happens today is inspired by money um most wars are inspired by money most events in history 
you know, all the Crusades, some people no doubt had very idealistic views about why they were going to fight. Um, but not everybody, certainly. I know that sounds very negative and it doesn't, it's not a very positive view of humanity and everything, but it's just something that comes from reading history. You do tend to end up with a negative view of, of human motivation, with some exceptions every now and then. All right, that's awesome. All right, cool. Uh, is everyone happy to move on to the next topic, the, the next segment? Yep. All right, cool. So this is kind of the main part now. Now we're going to look at, okay, so 1204, all the way back through, throughout the centuries, what, what is some of the historical evidence that we have um, proving that the shroud goes back centuries, um, back to the second century or even first century and that sort of thing? Um, I'm going to st start with Mark. Yeah, okay. Um, shroud history before... 1204 or the 1350s or whatever. Again, lots of theories. Um, the one thing that I object to in this is, it's not the case of Hugh, um, it's the case of certain other skeptics, let's say, who believe the shroud is medieval, fine, who do tend to give you the idea that there is no mention of the shroud before the 1350s, that history is silent about the Shroud. Um, and that's not true. And like I say, we have to differentiate these mentions that we cannot guarantee refer to the Shroud that's kept today in Turin, uh, but there are history is full of mentions of the burial Shroud of Christ. Okay, that goes right back to second century with the well-known Gospel of the Hebrews. The Gospel of the Hebrews, not one of the canonical Gospels. Um, we don't have the full text of it. As with so many early Gospels that the church didn't accept, apart from the Gnostic Gospels, which were found, but there are many, many Gospels which we only know because of church fathers arguing against them and refuting them. Okay, which is the case of the Gospel of Hebrews. Now, luckily, one of the um, references that we do have to the Gospel of the Hebrews, let me just get my paper towards to this right place because I've got it all out of order. Okay, um, Jerome, the guy who translated the Bible into Latin, says that the original of the Gospel of the Hebrews was written in Hebrew. Um, but then he gets confused and says that only the letters were Hebrew and the language was um, Syriac. Um, Jerome actually does quote in Latin from the Gospel of the Hebrews. And there's one sentence that he uses, which is, is very funny. It says in English, obviously, it says, but the Lord... After giving the shroud to the priest's servant, went to James and appeared to him. There's a British scholar, C.H. Dodd, who suggested that the original reading shouldn't be the priest's servant, but Peter. Um, remotely similar in Latin, but there's no need to change that because it makes perfect sense. It's totally out of context. We have no idea who the priest's servant is. But in other words, what that shows us is that the shroud um, had been kept and existed, okay? 
like I say, it's important to remember that we're talking about the burial shroud of Christ. Doesn't necessarily mean it's the shroud that we see today in Turin. Okay. Uh, it gets more interesting as well. Um, the most Arabic liturgy, the most Arabic liturgy is a Spanish liturgy called the Toledo liturgy um, or the Visigothic liturgy. Uh, it was used in Spain before the Arabic invasion in 711, but was eventually abolished under King Alfonso VI of the part of the peninsula that was Christian in the 11th century. Now, when this liturgy talks about um, Easter Sunday, it says, uh, Peter ran to the tomb with John and saw the recent imprints of the dead and risen one on the cloths. Okay. In other words, the familiar gospel passage of the two disciples running to the tomb and actually seeing the burial shrouds of Christ. But what this liturgy adds is that they saw on the cloths imprints. That's the word I use. The Latin word is uh, vestigia. Okay, which can mean footprint, but footprint wouldn't really fit in the context. Um, in other words, they saw something uh, on the cloths that showed to them that Christ was dead and had risen. Again, I have to be strictly historical with this. Um, that is not there is no historical evidence that uh, Christ rose. That's a question of personal belief. All it means is that the person who wrote this liturgy believed that. Okay. Um, it, in a very often historical documents tell us much more about what the author's belief was than rather than what actually happened. Okay. But here we have in the sixth or seventh century a reference to. Um, something on the cloths that made the disciples, the two disciples, think that the person who was dead and buried in the shroud was now alive again. Okay. Uh, another author from Spain, Brolio, St. Brolio of Zaragoza, which sounds like I'm lisping when I'm talking Spanish, Saragossa in English, okay. He wrote a letter, uh, again, in the seventh century, um, uh, talking about blood relics. Uh, again, doesn't matter if we think the blood relics he mentioned are genuine or not. He thought they were real. He thought they were genuine. He thought it was a serious matter. So he wrote about it. Um, and he wrote that the burial shroud of Christ had been found, okay, which suggests it had been lost and now it had been found again. And in the context that he's talking about, blood relics, obviously he's referring to the shroud having blood on it, okay. Um, what else do we have? Well, there's Codex Prey, which I think you spoke about on another episode uh, when that I didn't take part in. Um, that is pre-1204, certainly. And that actually does show that 
shroud kept in Turin today did exist um, at least in 1192, which is when that manuscript is dated to, okay, because of the artistic detail of the four holes, the burn holes in the shape of an L, okay. No matter what people say about coincidence, uh, there are some coincidences that just cannot be a coincidence. If the artist who drew that burial shroud put those four holes there that are on the Shroud of Turin is because he was copying from or had seen that and accepted that as the burial shroud. Now that is much more important than what people sometimes think. People often go, oh yes, but you know the hands aren't crossed in the same way. Uh, the uh, design on the cloth is not exactly the same, whatever. The four holes are exactly the same. And if you look at that from a historical point of view, that is as good a, uh, a sign, a good a proof as you'll ever get that that artist had seen or was copying from the shroud that is now kept in Turin. You do not put four holes in that shape by chance and then whoever made the shroud supposedly in the middle ages said oh you know guy in a hungarian manuscript put four holes in it i'd better do the same it doesn't work that way around okay so for me um i i didn't see the program dale when you spoke about um the prey manuscript i find that absolutely essential that means at least in 1192 which is when the manuscript was produced at the latest, um, that shroud with those L-shaped L holes in it already existed and obviously existed before then. How much before then? Can't say, but certainly before 1192, which does tend to eliminate any medieval theory. Um, can you say it's chance? Of course you can. Um, I think, like I said before, I read a book that said Jesus Christ and Tutankhamun were one and the same person. Somebody believes it, somebody published it, but it's not the kind of thing you can take seriously. I think you have to be reasonable about this and just admit, well, yeah, you know, um, whatever the Shroud of Turin is certainly existed in 1192. OK, um, the other examples I've given uh, certainly refer to the burial shroud uh, of Christ, but there is nothing definitive to link them to the shroud you know the gospel of the hebrews saint Braulio, the mozarabic liturgy the toledo liturgy uh, you know i apply my own historical criteria to myself i cannot say that uh, when the, whoever wrote the gospel of the hebrews in the second century wrote that he was referring to the same shroud that's now kept in turim you cannot say that you can say it's likely, you can say it's probable, you can say I believe that, but you cannot definitively say, um, you know, that is one and the same thing. You can with Codex Prey, I think. Okay, mm -hmm. that's basically what I would have to say. Always, there's plenty more details. I could talk about this from, from here till midnight, or as we'd say in England, till the cows come home. Um, but I'm not going to, because there's four of us and everybody has to have a say. But they're the basic points that I would like to make. Okay. 
Awesome. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, thank you very much for that, Mark. Um, now I want to turn it over to Jack. To What's your opening take on where the Shroud was uh, during these centuries prior to 1204? For some reason, Jack, you're, you're frozen on the, um, you're frozen on the uh, second meeting. So while you're straightening that up, I'll go to Pam. Uh, Pam, you can give your opening case. Okay, um, so let's start with the Gospels. Um, every Gospel, Math well, Matthew, Mark and Luke mentioned that Jesus was buried in a shroud. <coughs> um, and then John goes into a lot more detail. <coughs> Excuse me. He talks about um, strips of linen. He talks about the cloth that was around Jesus' head. <coughs> now, saying that somebody, you'd never see an obituary in which someone writes they were buried in a coffin. It just, it just doesn't happen. So that kind of detail um, that Jesus was buried in a shroud had some significance for the early disciples, I'm sure. <clears throat> and then John goes into a lot more detail. I've heard Mark speak very eloquently about the Sidarium of Oviedo, which um, is known to be that cloth that was around Jesus' head when he was on the cross and then taken down from the cross. Um, it has a historical record that's unbroken going back to Jerusalem. And the shroud and the sidarium match each other in terms of the blood patterning on them. <clears throat> so there's also, uh, St John talks about strips of linen. Um, John Jackson has shown that the, there's a strip of linen that goes the length of the shroud, <clears throat> which was once attached to it and then detached at some point and then sewn back on. And alleged, uh, a, a textile expert has suggested that that stitching um, goes back to first century Judea. Uh, she's seen examples of that in um, in some of the linen in Masada, the fortress that was destroyed by the Romans. So there's that that sort of physical evidence that goes back to the Gospels, and then um, there's the, the 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 hints of it. So you see Saint uh, Saint Paul talking about we see through a glass darkly, and then we will see face to face. He's talking about seeing the face of Christ and saying that it's like a glass darkly. Well, I think that's a good description of the shroud. Um, there's another where uh, uh, um, I went to a conference where someone was talking about Galatians 1, where it talks about you foolish Galatians, you have seen Christ crucified. Well, how had the Galatians seen Christ crucified? They, um, they, they wouldn't have done. They were pagans who'd become Christians. But it's possible they saw the shroud. So there's lots and lots of hints. Um, St Paul also talks about the glory of God seen in the face of Christ. But then <clears throat> I, th I think I, I would agree with Ian Wilson that the shroud is the Holy Mandelian. It was hidden for many years. And I think there's also physical evidence on the shroud. So at the time I was looking at all the radiocarbon dating stuff, I was doing a lot of folding and unfolding of the shroud to try and work out its folding patterns. And one of the folding patterns is like a triangle that goes across the centre of the chest and above the head. And you can see it going through the body. Now, it's that water and it's water damage. That water damage is not from the fire, because if you look at the back of the legs of the man on the shroud, um, the, the, the missing corn, the missing triangles of the um, fire damage from 1532 don't match the uh, the triangular damage is at a different place so i spent ages trying to work out exactly how it was folded and basically to get this triangular pass uh, triangular um mark on the front um you have to fold the cloth in half and in half again and then you concertina it i believe anyway that's what i tried to do and what's significant is that the water comes from the bottom 
from up. So the cloth is vertical and the water comes from the bottom. With the radiocarbon date, with the, with the sorry, the, the fire in 1532, um, the shroud is folded horizontally as cloths were in the Middle Ages in Europe. And the, the water and the fire come from the top and burn through. So you've got a situation where this cloth was folded vertical. Now that's very consistent with the type of thing that you would see in the Middle East, where things are folded, put in clay jars. And the city of Edessa is one where the river flooded regularly. It burst its banks at least three times uh, before the fifth, sixth centuries. So whether a little bit of water soaked into the bottom of the, of the container which was held and created that image. What's significant is that you can see that same triangular um, marking on various images of Epitaphios, I can't say it properly, and other, so uh, the Judith Gospels, for instance, which were done um, by Judith of Flanders in about, in the mid 11th century, they have the same triangular pattern. Um, the the uh, amulet of Frederick Barbarossa has the same triangle. Here, it's not the diaphragm, it's like a triangle. So there's lots of artistic evidence. But for me personally, what I've loved the most is, is to look at um, some of the Byzantine emperors. So a friend of mine, um, Joe Bywater, discovered that from the time of the discovery of the Holy Mandelian, the emperor started to specifically talk about the loris. Um, and the loris was the the um, scarf that they wore, a long scarf right down to the floor that they wound around themselves. Um, and it represented the winding cloth of Jesus. Now, why would they talk about the winding cloth of Jesus and wear it around their necks as the symbol of their authority if they didn't have the winding cloth of Jesus? It doesn't make any sense. Now, in 944, after the, um, the Mandelian was brought to Constantinople, the great emperor Constantine VII talks about the significance of the loris. He talks about going into the sanctuary in Hagia Sophia on Easter Sunday and wearing his loris. And the loris is re representative of the laying out of Christ for burial. And it's, it's gold because the loris was gold to represent his resurrection. So it's, it, they're talking about the the winding cloth of jesus there's a there's a great uh, reliquary called the limburg Staratiki, which was made by constantine and it references in it that one of the relics in it was the uh, winding cloth of jesus the cloth in which jesus was wrapped um from the tomb so i think there's lots of evidence but can i just show you just before i finish mark very interestingly talked about the prey manuscript and i've done a lot of research into i don't know if you can see it here this image here it's in a, a wonderful manuscript called, oops, I've got things coming up on my thing, called the Madrid Skylitzes. It's the only surviving illuminated manuscript of a history from Constantinople um, between 811 and 1055, around the time the Holy Mandelian arrived in Constantinople. And it shows the arrival of the Holy Mandelian. There's a beautiful illumination that describes that. But it also talks about a particular event in 1036 where there'd been a famine, people were starving, and they had a procession in which the Holy Shroud was carried through the streets of Constantinople. Okay, and it went from the palace where Mark has described that it was kept in a, in a golden casket 
to the Church of St. Mary Blagenai where the Crusaders reported seeing it um, from the head down to below the hands. And um, this image that I've just shown you is, has been misclassified in the text, in my opinion. So it is in the text, it says that it is um, the, the beheading of um, Leo V in 820. But that's not possible because um, the, the army is the Varangian Guard. And that's uncontroversial. The army is the Varangian Guard. You can tell that by the axes that they're carrying. And they're protecting a long, something that looks like a cloth, that's a golden loris with a three-dimensional head, just like the image of the, oh, Mark has got the book. By the look of it. Have you? Is, um, uh, wait, it's, I'll have to take the back because of the. It's a, com a total, yeah. complete facsimile of yes. these manuscripts. Okay. Yes. Yes. Brilliant. The and it and it has so so for instance very heavy yes so for instance Mark there's a there's a, a an illustration of in 1034 they took the holy mandelian before it was only ever seen by the emperors it was taken in diplomacy to try and get a very powerful unit to to support the the very unpopular Michael the Fourth um, so and you can see the golden casket in the manuscript you'll um, see it you got it. Yeah, yeah, so the full wow. of the whole thing. Right, okay. So what, what I was trying to, <laughs> to argue is that Mark argues very convincingly for the Prey manuscript. So we're looking at the incense damage to the shroud happening before um, 1193 in the Prey manuscript. 1193-95. Okay, now this is an event in 1036. If, if, as the text says, it's the shroud, and as the illumination shows, it is a guard, the Varangian guard. So the Varangian guard was sent to Constantinople in 988 AD by Saint Vladimir the Great, saint of Russia and uh, Ukraine, prince of Kiev and Novgorod, and he had an alliance with Basil II when he married uh, Basil's sister, Anna. And so this army didn't arrive until 988. And here they are doing something. And it's inexplicable that they're doing anything, to my opinion, other than protecting the Shroud of Turin as it was, oh, the Shroud of Christ as it was carried from the palace to St. Mary Blanchenay. So I, I was just trying to put in a bit of history, which I, I mean, I can't prove it, but which fits with what Mark was saying about, because if you fold the shroud into four to get the, the incense damage that is on the shroud, you end up with a image that is the same size as this thing that the, as the, the cloth with a three-dimensional head that the Varangian guard are protecting. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for that, Pam. Um, Hugh, let, let me turn it to you to give your sort of take on um, the Shroud's alleged history from the before 1204. I, I, I was I was working this morning using Jack's book, um, actually, because he's got a lot of um, possible documented references, which I'm about to this one here. Which, of course, we've all got mine's on Kindle. Um, and the thing is, there are lots of references to the Shroud, of course, starting with the Bible. 
and then various others which say that the shroud was in Jerusalem and that the shroud was in Antioch, that the shroud was in Beirut um, and that the shroud was in Constantinople. Um, so that there definitely there are possibilities, but of course we don't know that that shroud was the same as the relic we now have as the shroud of Turin. We also have a lot of pictures of Jesus um, not made by human hands. We've got the Mandelian of Edessa. We've got the um, image of Camuliana. Uh, we've got possibly uh, uh, the veil of Veronica, which may be the same one or it may be a different one. We've may got the, the, the veil of Manapello, which may be another something rescued from Constantinople. And most interestingly for me, we've got something called the Uranicon, which is a full-length miraculous image of Jesus, um, which was started by St. Luke, but finished by an angel. Um, so the fact that there were lots of pictures of Jesus around is undisputed. The fact that there were lots of shrouds around is undisputed. What's difficult to find is any reference to a shroud with a picture on it. Um, so uh, at the moment, I, I don't think there's enough evidence amongst all the documentary evidence uh, that demonstrates that the shroud, which we know as the Shroud of Turin, must have been around in pre-Constantinople times. Um, I can't show you lots of documents showing that something doesn't exist. So that's why I haven't. So that's it, really. Uh, yeah, that's why I was quite interested in Mark, this... Um, because I, if I knew about it, I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten it. This Braulio of Zaragoza, who suggests, and as far as I know, he's the first person to suggest, that any of the shrouds might have blood on them. Most references to the shrouds are, are of pure, clean linen and all the rest of it, um, if, if they describe them at all. I was just going to ask, because um, I know that Jack was kind of asking you to come up with like your own positive notion of like what these think documents are talking about. Did you... Well, um, uh, that's quite interesting uh, because we don't know of all the possible images of Jesus that there might have been. Um, we do know. I mean, I think I know there's quite a strong feeling amongst a faction of, of the authenticist um, clique, brigade, tribe, group, um, who, who think that the image of Edessa was the shroud. Um, I think there's also quite a strong feeling that there isn't. And certainly I don't think there's any art historical um, suggestion amongst Byzantine scholars that they could have been. And of course there are, and I think I tabulate about six of them in my own paper, of people who went to Byzantium and saw the Mandelian and the Shroud in different places. Um, the Shroud is always called the Shroud or Sindon or... or or um, Sanctuarium or Sudarium or something like that. And the Mandelian, funnily enough, is nearly always called the Towel, um, the Toellum or something like that. There we go. I, so th th I think those two are, qu are quite different things. Uh, but right. Jack came up with a sort of plausible idea that the Shroud had gone from Jerusalem to Antioch and was possibly the same as the Shroud of Beirut. And also uh, there's lots of weird history around that. But there's just no suggestion, insufficient evidence, to my mind, that um, a figure of Jesus painted on a board is the same as the Shroud of Turin.
Fair enough. I think the Euronicon in, in, in the Lateran um, Chapel is painted on a board. That might be that they were thinking of that. All right, fair enough. Um, so yeah, I am taking a look. Jackie is still still here. He's on the first meeting, so I can see him there. Uh, he's at a, he's almost at ninety eight percent. So I'm just trying to get him at a hundred percent, and then he can leave the first meeting, and hopefully he'll show up. Yeah. On the oh, second. right. That's, well, some of us are in both of them, aren't we? Yeah, Hugh. I need you to you need to keep staying because you're only at eighty eight yeah, percent. Yeah, but yeah, no, no. while we're while we're waiting for Jack to like complete his upload, uh, why don't you and Pam kind of do you guys want to discuss with each other about have sort of a, a dialogue? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so for instance, when um, the arrival of the Holy Mandelian in Constantinople in nine four four is a big event. It's 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 got an image of it in the Madrid Skylices. We know that Romanos the first sent a big army to Edessa to get the image, so it was a very significant image. Um, we also know that it was the main image where um, uh, that that sort of like brought to an end the period of iconoclasm uh, because envoys were sent to to, to um, um, John, St. John Damascene went to Edessa and looked at it at, at the time when they were trying to destroy all images. And he said that in the same way that um, that nature brings uh, us to acknowledge uh, to a love of God. So this the image brings us to a love of Christ. So after the Holy Mandelian arrived in 944, um, Constantine in the next, um, he only lived till 959. He wrote his book of ceremonies. He doesn't mention the word Mandelian at all. Um, he does talk about the laying off uh, the Loris. He talks about uh, the laying out of Christ. He writes um, in a in a letter to his troops that he has blessed them with water that has been touched against the um, the Sindon of Christ. So we go from a point at which the Holy Mandelian is the most important cloth in Christendom to the point where it's not mentioned at all in his work, but the Sindon is. So it's as if, to me, that seems a natural understanding that they, um, they, they stopped seeing it just as the face cloth and realised that it is the cloth that covered Jesus. Yeah, well, that, that, that makes sense, except, of course, that you've got all these pilgrims who saw something called the Toelam, or towel, which is usually regarded by scholars as the um, the Abgar towel, in other words, the image of Edessa. That was folded, yeah. Yeah, and they also saw the shroud somewhere else. Um, and and a, a lot of them um, describe that, including that wonderful Icelandic chap and all the rest of them. So you know, if if they describe, I mean, it's, it's conceivable. I mean, I think I think it, the folding patterns on the shroud would the, the raking like folding patterns on the shroud would definitely suggest that it was once folded into the state, so you could just see it as the face like this, and also that you could see it from the head down to below the hands, like on uh, you know on the Man of Sorrows images that that arrive after um, the middle of the tenth century. Um, well, that's possible, but then, of course, those creases could have occurred at any time. Um, for for yeah. example, I mean, we know we 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 have no particular evidence as to, or no specific evidence as to how the shroud was folded at any time, except for the um, the, the poker hole coincidence when we folded in four. We know exactly where those creases must have yes. been, yes. and of course, we know exactly where the creases must have been for the folding up for the um 
Shroud while it was in uh, comp uh, Schaumbury for the 1532 fire. Yeah, and but we know fact, exactly how it was folded. We those, know exactly but, how it was folded. For yeah, but those creases, those creases aren't at all visible. Um, which, which, so it seems strange that a bunch of creases that were there in, I don't know, the year 1100 are still there, whereas a bunch of creases that we know must have been there in 1350, uh, 1550, 1530 are not there. So I'm, I'm not a no, great I, I, I don't know that they're not there. I just think that the they're creases. not being raised in light on well, the yeah, length rather than the width. Yeah, but you've still, I mean, the, 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 if the thing was zigzagged up, you'd have seen all those creases on the width as well. Awesome. And we so, don't. So sorry to, oh, Pam, I'll let you get the last word, but it looks like Jack is in the second meeting, so I want to make sure he gets hey. his opening case. So, so yeah, Pam, uh, Pam, give your final thought on that, and then I want to turn it to Jack. Yeah, I, mean, I think that there's lots of things. So so for me, one of the interesting things is that um, we've, there's, a, there's a, a, a an image called the Lier Shroud, which shows what the shroud looked like before it was burnt in the fire. I believe it was done by Lucas Cranach, the elder, one of the great um, artists. And in it, you can see the toes really clearly, long toes, um, really clearly, and material beyond the shroud. Now, in the same way that there's evidence of this triangular pattern on the chest of the man, so some of the really ancient images not only have the face looking identical to the shroud, but they have the spear wound in the side. Why was it in the right side? Why would the spear wound be in the right side? They have the triangle on the front and they have the long feet, the long toes, um, all which are seen on the shroud. Um, mm -hmm. and why did they all do that? What, it, the Bible doesn't tell us Jesus was speared in the right side. Why is it that from the, um, even as early as eight, I think the earliest gospel, gospel that shows that is five, eight, six or something. Um, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. This is, yeah. So uh, how did they know? It's, it's not just the iconography of the face, which is so identical. If you, if you look at the, the, the images that appeared after the sixth century, so mm. identical to the shroud. Mm. It's also other bodily um, realities the long toes, the spear in the side, this diamond pattern on the chest, which isn't a diaphragm. Anyway. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah. So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna just save that thought, Hugh. So I, I do have to be fair. I have to turn it to Jack because yeah, he yeah, has yeah, no, yeah. Uh so Jack, so over to you. Can first of all can yeah, can you can you speak? Just make sure we hear you. Yeah, I'm I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Perfect. Okay. All right, cool. So uh, now, Jack, uh, give your opening case. I know that you had images you wanted me to share. Do you, um, obviously, do you want me to share right away, or you, like? Uh, no, no. Because I, I think the way that this has been going, the direction where it's going, that a lot of the discussion is really uh, on topics that uh, I didn't send you images for, and uh, I think if something should come up, I'll just name the image for you, then maybe you could put that on. Sounds good. You have to take it away. Okay. Uh, I just think uh, one point that uh, I would like to make is that uh, a lot of people, when they look at the what I call the ancient history of the shroud, you know, in its first 500 years or so, if you take um, uh, the skeptical position on this, uh, basically, there is no shroud. It's medieval, so there's there's not really nothing to talk about when it comes down to it. If you take the position that uh, where where you stay with Wilson, um, 
there's not much much for you to talk about. I mean, you go to the uh, Abgar legend. Uh, you have to go to the, the Abgar legend of the 10th century to even get this because it wasn't in the legend before that. But the, the shroud in the form of a, a folded mandillion is taken to Odessa and it's put in a wall in 57 AD. And uh, you don't see it again until it pops out of the wall during a flood, um, you know, in around 525. N none of those events are dealt with historically. I mean, there is a flood, but there's no uh, report of anything being discovered or found. And there's no uh, historical uh, support for the uh, shroud having gone to Odessa in the first century. There's no Christianity in Odessa until uh, probably early in the second century. Adai is really a, uh, a real life figure from the early second century. So, you know, there's been this kind of uh, dearth of uh, attention to the shroud's uh, ancient history. And then the other thing that I, that, you know, over the years that I've come to learn about it is that there's a church tradition. It's called the discipline of the secret. It's, it's alive. It's real. It's a, it's a, um, a truism that, uh, was actually agreed to by Protestant and Catholic uh, debaters uh, from the Reformation. They identified it. They gave them the name, gave it the name, the discipline of the secret. And it's the subject of uh, academic discussion today. So it's not something that I'm making up uh, because it helps make whatever case I, I want to make with the shroud. And what transpired was that uh, when uh, the Church of Jerusalem was persecuted uh, and Jesus' uh, disciples scattered. Uh, the apostles and the Church of Jerusalem adopted this custom. And the custom was we're not going to talk about faith secrets directly. We have to talk about them via illusion. And they gave names to different things. The faith was known at the time as the way. And uh, baptism was called the seal. And uh, there were names given for the different sacraments and that sort of thing. And you can even see it in the writings of uh, Paul uh, in, in a, uh, a letter to the Corinthians. He's talking about the meat of the faith versus the milk of the faith. Uh, and he is uh, calling uh, catechumens the uninitiated and dull of hearing. So it's very clear that there was this uh, custom known as the discipline of the secret and it continued right on through to all to late in the uh fifth century uh, because even after constantine and the uh, edict of milan there was a fear on the part of the church that they were going to return to persecutions by the way it's a uh, an outgrowth really of jesus um uh telling the um uh, apostles that you don't, uh, you know, don't throw your pearls uh, to swine and, and uh, you know, uh, the secrets I've given to you, but I have not given to them. Well, in any way, if, if you've got that as a context, then you look at these uh, ancient um, writings uh, and say, uh, where might there be reference to the shroud at during this period of time. It's not gonna be called the shroud. It's not gonna give Hugh what he wants. There's not gonna be, someone's not gonna come out and say, 
Uh, there's a cloth with an image of Jesus on it. Because if you say that, uh, you know, when the shroud is in Jewish territory, they're going to seize it and they're going to destroy it because they're iconoclasts. And because the shroud is bloody and it, it violates Jewish ritual. If you do it during Roman times, uh, the Romans were known in the, their persecutions to also seize property. This was a, a hallmark of the Diocletian uh, persecutions from about 303 to 313. Uh, so if you know that, then you need to look, when you look at things that occurred during that era, you can say, is this uh, an application of the discipline of the secret? Now, you can find, for example, Christian inscriptions, and the famous um, archaeologist William Ramsey went, who went all through Europe and found these inscriptions. He himself has said that they are written in a way in which they have an exoteric message and an esoteric message. And the exoteric message means that the uh, pagans, the Romans at the time, they're going to read the message and they're going to just think it just means something usual, non-religious. But the Christians who know what the uh, underlying uh, meaning is, the message gets put through to them. So one of the most famous inscriptions is the inscription of Abersius, uh, which is dated to about 192. And there isn't a scholar who does not believe that that is an inscription that was done according to the discipline of secret. So with that in mind, I've looked at the writings during that period of time, certain writings that are there. And before I, went, I get to the more controversial one, which I know, you know Hugh has spoken to, I just go to the legend, uh, the Abgar legend, uh, which is what the Mandelian theory has been drawn on. There are two texts of this, essentially, in the early times. One is in Eusebius's Gospel. The other is in the Doctrine of Adai. And both of those authors uh, say that they received this information directly from the royal archives of Edessa. Now, Edessa was not a kingdom after the year 242. It was taken over by the Romans at the time. So if these authors are telling the truth, and there's no reason to doubt them, then you've got texts that precede 242, and those texts are written in accordance with the discipline of the secret. So when you see that, uh, for example, we'll go to the one that's, that's more direct on it, on the doctrine of Adai, you have this story of, uh, an image of Jesus being painted in choice colors, that is one of the ways that uh, someone back at that time may have referred to the fact that there was a, that the shroud was brought to Edessa at a, a particular point in time. Now, if you go to these, um, these two works, this again is not Jack Markwart making up something that assists in some kind of version of the shroud history. You've got academics who are writing uh, academic papers with no uh, relationship whatsoever to the Torrent Shroud, and they are saying that, the, that these uh, writings are allegories. They don't refer to, uh, in actuality, King Abgar V and the first century, they're, they refer to King Abgar VIII at the end of the second century when historically uh, it's been uh, certified 
uh, historically that missionaries did go to Odessa and that's when the Odessan church began. So you can find a series of references, which is kind of what I had sent over to you, Dale, you know, but you'd have to kind of go through them one by one in which there are uh, allusions uh, to objects that make perfect sense when they're considered in terms of the discipline of the secret being applied at that time. Um, now, the one that has come up recently, which I know has gotten a lot of interest, I know that, uh, that Hugh has spoken about it, is the um, uh, letter of uh, Paul to the Galatians, uh, you know, chapter 3, verse 1. Now, this is kind of a curious thing. It, it's curious to me in the first instance because uh, if you look at it, and maybe you could put this on the screen if you would, Dale, it's RSM1. You've got, um, I think I put that in there as a number of um, three different translations of it. See if you can get that. And, and while we're waiting, um, it was really originally Dorothy Crispino back in 1988, I believe. She wrote uh, a letter to, that's it, thank you. Okay. She wrote a letter to um, uh, Rex Morgan, who was putting out the Shroud News from Australia at that time, in which she brought up uh, the question of whether this verse uh, could be a reference to the Torn Shroud. And I remember I was in correspondence with her at that time, and she asked me what did I think about it at the time. And she and I both kind of agreed that there was no way that we knew to make a connection between the shroud and Paul and St. Paul. And when you read this and you read uh, John Calvin, who did the first exegesis on this back in the 16th century, uh, for a long time, people believed that um, this is Paul writing to the Galatians saying, what are you doing? You know, there was an apostolic gospel preached to you. Uh, and uh, in addition to the apostolic uh, gospel, uh, you know, before your very eyes, I'll read from Calvin at this time. Um, Who has bewitched you? that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you. And so, you know, Catholics are not very much into scripture and doing exegesis of scripture, etc. And basically a lot of the Protestant exegesis from the 16th century on carried through on this translation, although they criticized Calvin in, in terms of the way he set it up. What I have in red here, that ye not that you should not obey the truth. That's not even in the quote. That's Calvin kind of explaining his definition of what bewitched means. Uh, and then Calvin put be before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath evidently been set forth crucified amongst you. Well, Jesus was never crucified amongst the Galatians. And uh, so uh, subsequent exegesis had kind of turned it around to at least say, before whom the, uh, the crucified Jesus Christ has been set forth. So that kind of carried the 
for many years to St. Paul having the um, it's kind of been put aside and um, but in 2014 a fellow by the name of Frederick Baltz and I think that this was at the St. Louis conference and I think Pam you were at that conference I remember talking to you there um, he came he, he came forward with the idea that this is or could be a reference to the shroud um, but he didn't, again, he didn't connect it to St. Paul. It was because I couldn't connect it to St. Paul that I didn't write about. But he couldn't connect it to St. Paul, and he just kind of left it hanging out there, and he had this vague suggestion that maybe some Galatians had walked, had gone out to Antioch, and Peter had the shroud in Antioch, and so maybe some of them saw the shroud and then went back and told the other people in the tribe, about it it was it was very kind of loose and not convincing at that time and then uh, two years ago this fellow larry stally who writes uh, you know some papers from time to time uh, he got onto the the subject and once again uh he is not really making a connection to somebody who could be, could have legitimately brought the shroud into galatia uh, he's very much uh, uh, suggesting that it was Paul, although he mentions, you know, perhaps it could be Peter, it could be uh, someone else. Um, but what I would say about it here is, first of all, on the historical end of things, uh, there's very there's very little doubt that Peter went to went from Jerusalem to Antioch. That's number one and served as the first bishop of Antioch. There is um, information from um, uh, the Bishop of Merv, I'm trying to think, Osadad, I think, uh, the Bishop of Merv uh, in his commentaries that say specifically that Peter and John took the uh, linens from the tomb. They returned most of them to Joseph of Arimathea and then, the, then Peter kept the shroud with him, and he would use it as, uh, as he would go around and do his work, and he would arrange it on his head. This is what seems to have been the Eastern tradition. But in any event, there's a much stronger case for the shroud being with Peter than with Paul, and probably a stronger case of the shroud being with Peter than almost anyone else. Well, again, in terms of what I think has been missed historically up to this point is we do know that Peter preached in Galatia. There is a work, um, if I can find a reference to it, uh, there is a work that says that Peter preached in Galatia, and then in the first letter of Peter, he addresses it to uh, certain peoples uh, that he apparently had done missionary work among, and amongst them are the Galatians. So if you take a look at this verse, uh, it Peter is not speaking in the active voice. He's speaking in the passive voice. He is not saying, I showed you this image of Jesus. Uh, Paul, Paul is saying that uh, I'm not, it's not saying that I showed you this image of Jesus. He's saying it was shown to you. 
And so uh, I think there's enough historical evidence to make this a credible um, reference to the shroud because uh, the reference is to Peter and not to Paul. Now, uh, I don't see it on the screen. Are the translations still up there? Dale? Oops, let me bring it up again. Uh, yep, hang on one second. Take your time. I'm going to see if I can find that citation. All right, number one. Okay. This is R RSM 1, right? The Galatians passage? Yes, yes. Uh, that uh, text I mentioned before about Peter taking the shroud and keeping it with him is from the commentaries of Ishadad of Merv. Uh, and so what's happened uh, since the time of Calvin is that we've got these um, uh, new Bibles in which uh, it is the old texts have been compared and updated. So let's take a look at, first of all, the second one that is here. Um, and that's the one that's referred to, to by Frederick Bouts and by uh, Larry Stalley. This is the uh, English Standard Version, which I guess that should be something that you would like. Um, but uh, this is the, the translation, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So, so the translation is now publicly portrayed. I don't want to get into the, I know that this involves a particular Greek verb and, you know, that sort of thing. But if you look at um, what the new version is, it says it's, it's an essentially literal translation of the Bible in contemporary English created by a team of more than 100 leading evangelical scholars and pastors. It emphasizes word-for-word word accuracy, literary excellence, and depth of meaning. It's gained wide acceptance and is used by church leaders today. So that's a perfectly valid translation of that text. The one that I used uh, in my book is from New International Version of the Bible. Uh, and this is also one that's a completely original translation of the Bible developed by more than 100 scholars working from the best available Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek texts and employing the best available manuscripts uh, in the original languages. And this translation is, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. So in both of these modern texts, they are talking about a portrayal of Jesus, a clear portrayal of Jesus. Um, and that is what Paul intended. Now, Paul himself, who's a practitioner uh, of the discipline of the secret, uh, we know that from Corinthians, he needs to develop uh, a verse in which he wants to accomplish two things. If you remember, it has to have an esoteric meaning. So the the pagans and the Romans who who might get a hold of the letter, who might end up reading it, they could read it the way that John Calvin read it, and say, you know what he's talking about here. Paul was such an excellent preacher of the gospel 
his message was so powerful that the uh, Galatians, when they heard him talking about Jesus being crucified, they were able to imagine this in their minds. They were able to get a vision of Jesus crucified. It's not necessarily a reference to something that is real or artistic. But the Galatians, to whom the letter is addressed, if they've seen this being displayed to them, if that's the reason in part for their conversion, they know what Paul is talking about. So it's a perfect application uh, of the discipline of the secret. Now, I know that one of the objections to this has been, and I think Hugh has you know, um, you know, properly addressed it, is that there are other ways that this Greek verb can be translated in such a way that you're not talking about uh, a portrayal or an exhibit. And I think Hugh would rather it be, or, or he, he prefers a reading in which it basically takes that Greek verb and it uses the word present, so that somebody presented this um, uh, idea of Jesus being crucified uh, and it's, it's not, uh, therefore, a reference to the tour and trail. But I think what he may miss, or maybe it's more important to me, is that in every one of these translations, it says that it was before your eyes that Jesus was portrayed. Before your very eyes, Jesus was portrayed. So this is something that for the Galatians was uh, optical. You know, it wasn't audio, and it certainly was that they didn't present it to their ears, and then they imagined it in their eyes. And, you know, as much as I could respect with, with the methodology that, that Hugh used, in which he went back and uh, uh, look at, looked at other uses of this word in Scripture, I think he had two uses that were made by Paul. Uh, they're not necessarily in context with this, the reason being that if this is written in accordance with the discipline of the secret and the other texts were not because there was no need to, then he is just using a verb that if, if, if you or anyone else can five, find five definitions for the verb, then Paul is doing what he's supposed to do under the discipline of the secret. He's using a verb that is uh, ambiguous, ambiguous, and you don't know which meaning he might be using at the time. But what I would say is it doesn't matter what I or Larry Stowley or Frederick Valls or anybody else who is open to the question of the Shroud's authenticity may think. This is not my translation. I didn't go back and say, uh, you know, let me do what Hugh did and I'm going to pick out the word portrayed. This is uh, two separate panels of the top scholars in the world in terms of uh, uh, theological uh, background. Uh, doing exegesis and that sort of thing, they're using this word. This is the translation that they have come out with. And so if we've got an image of Jesus crucified that was clearly portrayed and put before the eyes of the Galatians, I think there is an excellent chance that this is, per the discipline of the secret, this is a reference to the Shroud of Turin. And I don't think it's gotten enough attention before and uh, I, you know, I can understand where if somebody wants to uh, contest it, uh, they can contest it. But I don't think this is going to be a difference between what I think and what Hugh thinks, 
Uh, I think it's really a contest between what do people who are experts in this field think that this uh, uh, translation is. And once you have the translation in place and you've got the history in place, and that is that Peter was in Galatia preaching uh, an apostolic gospel to these very people, uh, this could be, uh, you know, people are always talking about carbon dating and, you know, if uh, you would have a new test and the carbon dating would come out to uh, 53 AD, uh, how that would nail it down that the shroud is uh, or should be authentic. Well, here is a text that was written in between 53 AD and 56 AD talking about something that happened in the 50s that might very well be identifying uh, the Torin Trail. And I think this has a lot more importance than the way that uh, it has necessarily been treated in the past. Um, you know, uh, the other, uh, just one other uh, text that I would like to bring up and then well, that'll be it. And, and believe me, I have probably 20 of these, but uh, this goes to the, uh, the text called the Latin Tractate. And uh, I didn't send that over to you, Dale. I'm sorry. I don't have that one there. No. Um, no worries. But let me just, uh, I think probably Hugh and Pam are familiar with this. And that is that um, there is a tractate uh, in which uh, this is what is said. Jesus tells King Abgar, quote, if you really wish to see physically my face, I send to you this linen cloth on which you will be able to see not only the features of my face, but the divinely transferred state of my whole body, unquote. Now, uh, that text um, is, the important thing is to date that text. And what I would prefer, uh, I'll mention this, uh, Ernst von Dobschutz, who's probably the key um, expert on images of Jesus, he dated that text to around 759. He thinks that that's the text that was referred to by Pope Stephen when he made a reference to a cloth uh, bearing an image of Jesus. That statement that statement by um pope stephen really only referred to jesus face it didn't refer to the body but but uh Doshitz thinks that he was looking at this uh text uh probably uh one of the most formidable skeptics on the history side of things um is andrea nicolotti uh and he Uh, uh, in fact, just wish to respond to Are we still on? Uh, yeah, you cut out for a second there, oh, but yeah. Okay. Okay. So, on Nicolotti, who is, uh, you know, a skeptic, he does not, he believes the shroud is medieval. He looks at this text and he says, wait a minute, this reference to Jesus' body is in uh, interpolation. It wasn't in the original text, but it was added later. Uh, 
So I won't debate that point, but Nicolotti then concedes that the latest the interpolation would have gone on there would gone in there would have been before the 11th century. And in fact, I think that uh, this particular text century that may be why and it's called the Latin text because it's in Latin, whereas the original author mo most likely wrote it in Greek. So let's just take that as a given. Let's take what Nicolotti has to say as the worst case scenario. Then why in the world is there a reference to a full body image of Jesus on a linen cloth tied in in some way to the Abgar legend being written before the 11th century if it's not referencing the Turin Shroud? And if it is referencing the Turin Shroud, that's centuries before the carbon dating. And so that just is not addressed. I found it incredible when I read Nicolotti's book that he made that concession, but then did not say, what does that refer to? This is what I think the skeptics largely have gotten away with in the past. And they've put, in the, uh, they've put the authenticists to the test so often. But if the, if the object in Galatians is not the Turin Shroud, then what is it? Who was making any kind of image of Jesus in the 50s that they would refer to? If this reference in the Latin tractate is not to the Shroud of Turin, what is it to? What is the full-length image of Jesus on a linen cloth tied into the Abgar legend that somebody is writing about at that time if it's not the Turin Shroud? So I think you can kind of go through uh, many other references to the Shroud uh, over, over the years and over the centuries. And to each one, I think someone like you could make probably a very good argument saying, I don't think that quite convinces me. Or, you know, it doesn't, it's not specific enough. But what they don't answer is, what are all of these references to? There's a reference uh, in a sixth century uh, journal by John Moshas that says, an awesome image of Jesus appeared in Antioch in around 538. An awesome image of Jesus. Okay, maybe it's maybe it's on wood, maybe it was a painting, maybe it was something else. But what was it? What other awesome images of Jesus exist at that time? Who was describing any other image of Jesus as awesome? And when you get these references to these not made by human hands, the images that, that Hugh has uh, referred to, like the image of Kamaliana, which was called in Constantinople the image of God incarnate. When you have those images that are, are there and they're described as uh, not made by human hands, there's sometimes a, uh, I don't know, an implication that there were a lot of these. There really weren't. There were, I think it was the image of Odessa, it was the image of Kamaliana, and then there was some image that was hardly known in Egypt. These were the only not made by human hands uh, images attributed to that. So why was that? Why why was that term applied to those particular uh, cloths at that time? All of which can arguably be uh, placed in the history of Turin Shroud, either as written by me or written by Ian Wilson 
or or someone else. So uh, I don't think we're going to ever find. I hope we are. I think Hugh, I saw you wrote something, you know, uh, uh, recently on your blog about uh, maybe farcically, uh, maybe they'll find a uh, an image or a painting of the shroud in the the in the diggings that they're doing for the Italian subway in Rome. Uh, but you know, that's not, that, that could happen. Something like that could happen, but we don't have that to work with now. But we have an awful lot to work with now that I think that the people who are open to the, the issue of authenticity can argue. And the people on the other side can't just sit around and take pot shots and say that that's not good enough. I want more. They really have to answer questions about what are these references about then? Why, you know, I'm not making this up. Nicolotti's got this. He admits it existed. He's the one that's dated it before the 11th century. What is this? Why, why are people writing these things? And doesn't don't they tell us that the Torin Shroud predates the carbon dating range by centuries? That seems to be something that's overlooked, and I think that's why there's an importance in history. It, it's it's just like with science, in which if we're really looking for answers to this, maybe we're going to get them faster through history than science. Who knows? All right. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jack, for, for that opening there. Um, obviously, I uh, just want to, before I throw it open to all the panelists to kind of have an informal discussion. So I just want to clarify for the audience here. There, there are at least three different views here on the historicity of the Shroud. Obviously, Hugh Ferry is a Shroud skeptic. He's, it, it wasn't anywhere, but it didn't exist until the 1350s. Uh, but Jack and Pam, even though they're pro-Shroud, they have slightly different historical hypotheses about the Shroud. So I just wanted to clarify that for the audience. But yeah, I'll, I'll throw it open to you guys. What, what do you guys, uh, Hugh or Pam, anything that Jack said that you guys want to discuss or vice versa? Yes. Um, should we do one at a time? Can I look at um, Proegraphion and the the epistle to the Galatians? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, <clears throat> why does Paul write the letter in the first place? And what occasion is he referring to? You see, the whole of the epistle to the Galatians is a diatribe against St. Peter specifically it says you know you guys do not follow the jews it you are damned if you get circumcised paul is is really shouting at the galatians someone has bewitched you and you've gone right off the course now why do you believe that's peter yeah peter has why do you believe it's peter sorry why why do you believe it's peter who knocked them off course well that's the whole nature of paul's epistle it is but he's talking about judaizers that other uh, uh other uh, christians who are coming out from jerusalem and saint james the ones who were against uh the uh, uh the uh, ruling of the council of jerusalem that christians gentile christians didn't have to be circumcised or uh, follow dietary laws. Peter 
was in favor of that. He voted for it. So did James. But there is still this minority group of Jews who want to be Jews first and follow the law. He doesn't mention Peter. He's just talking about somebody that was out there, and it's likely the Judaizers who were coming out. This is not a diatribe against Peter. You, think you don't not? have anything that says it was Peter that was doing this or that Peter ever preached that way. Well, it's uh, it's against the Jews of Jerusalem as opposed oh, to... Well, some of the Jews of Jerusalem, yeah. But there was a whole council in Jerusalem. James is still the bishop of Jerusalem, and he's the one that sent two disciples with uh, uh, Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to confirm to them that they had adopted this new rule that you didn't have to be circumcised. So there's a whole group in Jerusalem, particularly the leadership, who are with the apostolic gospel, the ones that Paul preaches. It's not, Peter is not, Peter and Paul don't get along. They look at some things differently, but they both preach the apostolic gospel that was approved at the Council of Jerusalem. So, yeah, well, yeah, that's another interpretation. Well, it's, it's different from my interpretation of it. That, um, so the, the person who portrayed Jesus as crucified, you're suggesting was, was Peter. Was Peter himself. So Peter showed them the shroud. Right. Then the other Jews came along. You got it. And right. then Paul came and came. And, yeah, I think and, Paul was there first. He did his preaching. Peter went in. He did his preaching. He's railing against. Paul was railing against the fact that you've heard the apostolic gospel from me and from Peter. And, and there's an invitation. That's a very good way of putting it, and I would have to go off and research that more. So I'll I'll concede that point. Look, what go research it first. <laughs> go research it first, then concede it. I, that would be better. Yeah, good. Now, uh, then I'll just um, go on to the other um, thing that you mentioned, which was the Tractatus, uh, yes. which describes, and I'm afraid I've got Nicolotti's book here, uh, which describes this. Uh, this painting, which has got not only the features of my face, but also the divinely transferred state of my whole body. Well, why are you saying painting? Oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm saying it's, it's, it is. It's, I have transferred the features of my face and my whole body. To a cloth, yes. To a cloth. Yeah. And he then goes on to say, describes this cloth in some detail. Mm -hmm. He says where it is. It's yeah. in Edessa. Yeah. It's brought out. And it's worshipped by all the people, and it changes according to the different aspects of its ages. In the morning, it looks like a baby, and then in the third hour of the day, it looks like a child, and in the sixth hour of the day, it looks like the full body of Christ. Now, that's not a description of the shroud. Well, so I, would, I, I would agree there that that's, that's not a description of the shroud. But we don't even know if the author of this ever saw the cloth. He's reporting on what the letter was between Jesus and uh, Abgar. Yeah. Why, why is he in the letter to Abgar describing something that involves a full body image on a linen cloth? Well, I think there may well have been a painting. Why is he of doing it? <clears throat> well, the thing is that there were lots of, of uh, images of Jesus. All over the place. Some of them were completely destroyed. The image of Camilliana has just completely dis disappeared. It was not destroyed. It was not destroyed. Well, it seems to have disappeared. You, what, what text do you have that says the image of Camilliana was destroyed? 
Oh, nothing. It's just that it dis it, we never hear of it again. You do hear about it again. Are you aware of the Tarragona manuscript? Yeah. Okay. The Tarragona manuscript describes an image of Jesus in Constantinople and says that the history of that cloth was once in Constantinople when there were continuous earthquakes. And in order to stop the continuous earthquakes, the emperor took that cloth and put it in a box, and it's laid there for centuries since the time that that's happened. The only time there were continuous earthquakes in Constantinople was 741 under an iconoclastic emperor who would be just the type of emperor would say, well, we're going to resolve these problems because God is mad at us because of the image. But it goes into a box and it hasn't been opened by anyone but the emperor for centuries. That's the image of Kamaliana. That's the image of God incarnate. That's the cloth that's in Constantinople 200 years before the Mandonian was lost. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. But it then disappears. That's your sindon. Is it still in the box? You were just you were talking before how there's two cloths in the 12th, 13th century. One's a sindon, one's a mandillion, one's a tau. The mandillion is the mandillion. The sindon is the cloth that was in the the box for centuries. Uh, and uh, it wasn't opened again until uh, it was finally put out when there were exhibitions in the early 13th century. Those are the two cloths. What one thing I just want to make sure Pam has a fair say because obviously Pam, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll stop on that and, and let Pam have a go. <laughs> okay. Well, did did you have many more questions? Or I, I do want to make sure Pam. No, has no. A... I, I, I mean, I I agree that I think that the Galatians reference uh, references the shroud. Um, I think there's also a lovely reference of um, St. Paul in 2 Corinthians, where he talks about um, seeing the glory of God in the face of Christ. And how would his writers in Corinthians um, have a sense of that? Why does he use that language, the glory of God in the face of Christ? That's 2 Corinthians 4, 6, um, or 6, 4. Um, so, but um, going back to the letter of Jesus to Abgar, it, in, the, in the Madrid sky, it actually appears... So um, they sieged, besieged uh, Edessa, and uh, the general, his name I think is Maniarchis, found the letter of Jesus to Abgar, and in 1036 he brought it back to Constantinople, and it was kept in the same golden box as the. I'm so, I'm so sorry, I had a whole PowerPoint presentation, but I haven't managed to get it to work oh, to you. Yeah. Um, they, they managed to. Um, it, it was in the same golden box. That went um, as a in, in thirteen you know in ten thirty four um, to persuade um, a, a reluctant eunuch to follow um, Michael the fourth. So that there was the holy woods, um, there was the holy Mandelian, the letter of Jesus to Abgar, and actually an icon of Mary, um, which were the four great sacred things, all kept in this golden box. And there's a, in the Galitzi there's a picture of the golden box being transferred. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it would be very difficult for us to any of us to get to the bottom of these things. Um, but I personally just think that the Shroud is authentic. I think it wrapped Jesus of Nazareth. I think that there's, uh, it's very difficult to explain it unless that's the case. So, for instance, in some of the things I've been saying to, can I ask you, is there a history of it post, um, post the carbon date, um, which would show that it was folded and stored vertically? 
where is the history that says it was folded into four and damaged by incense, as we see in the Prey manuscript? Where is that history? Because actually the history of the shrine is very well documented from 15, uh, 1355 onwards. So when was it folded into four so it was damaged by incense? When was it stored vertically in a jar? Um, well, well, probably when, when, when <laughs> Margaret de Shani was touting it around Europe. She wandered all over the place, exhibiting no, but, it here and there. No. And, sure, uh, but, no, but in Europe, in Western Europe, cloth was always stored in chests horizontally, not vertically. It's a completely different form of of storage. If you, if you, if you look it up from, from the 8th, 9th centuries, the Western oh. tradition is always stored cloth horizontally. Yeah, I don't think it was necessarily um, stored. I mean, it was on the back of a donkey being taken from A to B. Or, you know, anything could have happened to it. So, okay. I mean, she was carrying okay, so, it around. So a, major, a major change to the nature of this cloth happened on the back of a donkey. Is that what you're saying? Well, the, the thing is that it was carried about. We've got no w way of knowing where it was carried to or why it was carried or all the rest of it. Um, no, but why but, you should but, think that... You, but you, you need to... I'm, I'm, suggesting, I'm suggesting some yeah. concrete history. Well, yeah, this no, but is you're the occasion when it was yes. damaged by incense. We know it was before... Well, so I, I want you to give me something similar, I suppose. That's, that's where I'm coming from. I'd like you to give me, on this day, at this time, in this place, it was damaged by incense. Yeah, I do know you know what I mean? That. I, yeah, yeah. But I so, can't do that because I don't know when it was. There's, there's no evidence. <laughs> you, don't, you, don't, you don't have any evidence Sorry? either. I, I don't see. The idea you that the cloth was stored horizontal, vertically in, in first century times is ludicrous. Of course it wasn't. What on earth makes you think that? The water damage on it. Yeah, but the, that the water damage. That doesn't mean that the water damage is usually stored. It has been stored vertically. The, the shroud may have been at some point vertically and dipped in some water. But to say that that's typical of the first century way of storing cloth, but not of the medieval way of storing cloth, is ridiculous. I don't think it is. There's no evidence that cloth was ever stored vertically in no, medieval no, it first century times. Any more than in any other time. Nobody no, stored it's cloth. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Hugh, were stored in clay jars vertically. Yes, but with all due respect, it's a Middle Eastern form of storage. They're they're bits of paper stuffed into a jar. They're not large cloths. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> no, cloths were not ever stored vertically as a as a matter of course, um, because they'd crumple up, as indeed the shroud did at some point. And uh, yeah, whatever it was stored in, it sits on its side. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Um, do you have any questions for Jack as well? Because obviously you guys aren't in 100% agreement yourselves. So anything that you want to ask Jack about? No. No? no? Okay. Well, I mean, I suppose I, suppose I would. I, 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 don't, I haven't researched it enough to know whether it was St. Peter or St. Paul who um, showed... I, I agreed with you wholly about the fact that there is such a strong hint that um, the Galatians, and I would argue also the Corinthians, had seen something of Christ, a physical representation of Christ. And I, I, I don't know enough to, to, to talk about whether it was St. Peter or St. Paul or, um, or whether they themselves travelled. Um, I mean, I suppose I'm inclined to believe the Abgar um, uh, legend and the Holy Mandelian, um, partly because of 
this arg argument of the, 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 it being a vertical storage in a jar, um, partly because of, of the, the sacredness of the Holy Mandelian in the way it was treated. But uh, I, I don't really know Jack enough. Um, and, you know, yeah. And I, I, I really like what you say about things being hidden. I think that's absolutely true. And I think you see it in the Gospels. I think Jesus healed somebody and said, don't tell anybody. You know what I mean? And that sort of sense of of um, of the hiddenness of the sacred. Um, and so maybe we'll never get to the bottom of it fully. Do you know what I mean? And that's part of the, um, you know, the plan of God, that we, we, we can search and search and search. And to some extent, of course, we will find God. But some of the hidden things are sacred. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm just talking off the top of my head now. No, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, all right, cool. Well, let me give it to Jack to take the reins. Uh, do you have anything you want to discuss with the others? Yeah, well, just just something I, if I can play off of something that Pam said, um, and that is, uh, if you if Pam is open to the idea, or even sold on the idea, that it is the shroud that's being so shown to the Galatians. Uh, that happened in the 50s. That's when Peter and Paul were doing their missionary work. If the shroud is in Galatia in the 50s, it's not in Edessa. It's not in a wall in Edessa. So that that's where I think that the, the uh, Abgar legend is a legend, and that's where it gets people on a dead end. You know, a funny thing about this is okay, that... Go ahead. A funny thing about this is that um, uh, I went and presented this paper uh, on uh, Shroud being taken to Antioch at the 1999 uh, Shroud Conference in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And I <clears throat> that was attended by Ian Wilson. And when Ian Wilson listened to my paper and considered it, which was basically going against uh, the first part of his Mandelian theory, he came up and he basically said, you know, that is a very possible explanation because my explanation is I've just taken a legend. And after the conference was over and I published the paper, he was uh, the uh, editor of the newsletter, the British newsletter, and he, yeah. asked, he asked my permission to publish that. And he put out the Antioch uh, theory that I had. So I just yeah. want to make it clear that, I mean, I don't think... It, it, I don't think you have to be married to every part of the Mandelian theory. If you believe that the Shroud is the Mandelian, it could very well be the Mandelian. I initially thought the Shroud was taken to uh, Antioch, and when Antioch was destroyed in 540, the Shroud was taken to Edessa, which was nearby. And, you know, that's, that's a perfectly uh, rational uh, approach to take uh, to it. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, Pam, what, what I've seen happen with other authenticists, you take somebody like Emanuela Marinelli, for example. Um, she has co-authored papers that uh, talk about art, Jesus' art in the third yes. century, fourth century. Lovely. And what's said in there is that that art is based on the image of the Torrent Shroud. But she is a subscriber to the Mandelian theory. So if the Shroud is in the wall of Edessa from the 1st to the 5th century, how are they basing this art 
on the image of the Mandillion, you know? And that that's why uh, I know that you wrote some things. I've even cited them in my book where you talk about the Loros and, and things that happened in uh, Byzantium under Justinian. I believe that that's right. I think that's one of the signs that the shroud was in Constantinople during the reign of Justinian. But if it was, if it was there, how did it get there if it's still supposed to be in Odessa at the time? And a lot of these shroud theories that are kind of historical in nature, they're not taking things in context uh, historically. It's, it's fine to me, I think, to say the shroud was in Antioch and then it was taken to Odessa in the sixth century and everything that Wilson has said from there on, if you want to believe that the, the, the Mandelian is the is the uh, model for the Pantocrator images and that sort of thing, you know, that's that's fine if you want to say that. Okay, I know Hugh has a different view on that. I think that the Shroud was the model for the Pantocrator images, but the model was the image of Camilliano. It was the image of um, God incarnate because that was in Constantinople. Uh, Giulio Fonte, for example, is trying to convince uh, people, uh, and I'm kind of convinced of this myself, that the coin from 692 that has an image of Jesus on it is at least shroud-based or shroud-influenced. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he said, and he, said, he says it has so much detail, it uh, had to be done by a Byzantine engraver who yeah. had to be seeing it at the time. Well, the problem is, in 692, the shroud is not in Constantinople for a Byzantine engraver. The shroud is in Edessa, and Edessa has been conquered by the Muslims and Byzantine Empire, and the Muslims have been at war for 60 years before 692. So that just can't happen. And that's why I think a lot of people who go back and say, you know, I think the shroud was the Mandillion, and they want to buy onto all nine yards of it, including the legend and the middle period and the Templar period they come up with very good historical findings but i don't think sometimes they realize that those findings are inconsistent with that theory at least parts of that theory and i think that has to be set through or somebody like Hugh, who's a really bright guy who looks up all this stuff that's where he takes his pot shots you know that's where his criticisms are valid but if he's allowed to take them and those, those uh pot shots are valid everybody's going to think everything he says is right you know so which can't be because he's he's not perfect yeah but the, the thing is i mean i think i i think that you know we underestimate the extent to which the ancient world traveled i mean we know from st paul and the journeys the three journeys that he took that he went enormous distances you know he went from jerusalem he went into arabia for three years he went he went to Rome where he was executed, you know, that, on horseback or walking, you know, they went huge distances. There's no reason why people couldn't have traveled to Edessa. I mean, except, they, except you know, if they were Christian and they were at war with the Muslims, they would they wouldn't travel there. They would they would be putting their safety in danger, especially if they were representatives of the Byzantine government Precisely. I mean, or the church. Or yeah. The church. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think that I think you you also have to look at how the Muslims um, uh, and I, I can't remember the exact dates in which Odessa was overtaken. Six thirty nine. Six thirty nine. Okay. 
but but also you have to look at how I mean we've been you and I have been very blessed to go to a Muslim event where they had huge huge respect for the shroud of the shroud and believe it wrapped Jesus um, that the people of Edessa although they were Muslims had great respect for the shroud they certainly didn't want to part with it they had to be bribed with a huge amounts of money and the return of two hundred slaves and all that sort of, of, of captives and things like that so for the Mandelian yeah. To say that they would have been completely it would be impossible to visit the city is is um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that no I don't know that it would be impossible to the city but I think it might have been difficult to make the arrangements in 692 to visit the city at that time with I think the war with the Muslims only ended in about 682 some you know yeah. somewhere in that time and i think mark has written on this uh, i remember it from his book that uh the muslims although they were tolerant of uh, the christians uh, they would not let them um uh, for example uh show their crosses uh they would they would impose on them a tax a special tax against them because they were christians so it wasn't all uh terribly friendly over there uh and uh it's just something that historically has to really be placed. Okay. Yeah, Jack, I think you're you're kind of roboting a bit, but I uh, yeah, I get it'll come back. It'll come back. Is uh okay, yeah, but okay. Uh, okay Mark, Mark you talking about I mean, I think, Mark talked about I think... the text from Yeah, you're both you're both back. So, yeah, whoever wants, okay. uh, um, fin finish this round off. Um, but uh, do you also have anything you want to discuss with Hugh before? Because I, I know I cut off Hugh. He had more questions and stuff like that. But um, do you have anything with Hugh, or like you're just more on on uh, going with Pam? Oh, is he frozen? No, again? I'm 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 boy, but more or less more or less happy. No, I don't really um, have any questions of you. I, I mean, I, I just I would want to say that I mean I think that uh, it's a great service that you have Hugh on here. I think he does you know wonderful work. I think that he does uh, he does his homework. He studies a lot. I mean, his background is science, but you know he can hold his own in history. Uh, and I think he and he's open minded. Uh, unlike a lot of the skeptics that we're used to dealing with, I think he's open-minded that if he's given sufficient proof and he checks it out, I think he his, he could change his opinion. Um, you know, that's what I've always tried to do on the other side with the Shroud. I've had different theories that I don't agree with anymore, different approaches I don't agree with. It's a learning process. Uh, and uh, I just think that if there was more cooperation between skeptics and authenticists, I think we could both make a lot of progress together, uh, you know, with a dialogue that's going going on. And uh, unfortunately, that dialogue doesn't exist. And it's and the fault is on both sides. I, you know, I I think that there are a lot of uh, skeptics, especially academics, that look down at. I've read things on which they look down at. Uh, they, you know, synonymologists. Nicolotti is rather famous for that. The way that he treats them. In their book, but I do know a lot of synonymologists. They don't want to know what the academics are writing about or what they're saying because they think whatever they're saying 
is done with the intent to disprove the authenticity of the shroud. And I don't think that's true. I think there's a lot of skeptics who are saying, hey, give me more proof, give me better proof, help me understand this in a better way, and I might change my mind. Awesome. All right, cool. Well, uh, Hugh, obviously, um, I kind of interrupted your your uh, line of questioning, but you're saying you don't have anything. You've I'm I'm, I'm very happy that Jack's been so generous. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, all right, so I'll I'll throw it open to any of you. Did, is there anything that we haven't talked about that uh, you guys feel like you want to talk or discuss with each other, or is there something we haven't fully explored, or are you guys all happy, or? I well, I think we kind of we kind of squeezed in a, a lot more than I thought we would be able to squeeze in during, you know, uh, this program. But I will say I do think there's a lot more that could be said. I think there are a lot more areas of the Shroud's history that we haven't approached. I would love the opportunity to uh, deal with you again on the Darcy Memorandum. I saw the program on the Darcy Memorandum, and I know that uh, his views on that uh differ from my own in terms of what you know he emphasizes and all so uh you know yeah. I, I would glad i would be glad to get together with him on that topic be nice to discuss yeah i could be, be nice to discuss that sounds good yeah I'll, I'll set that up for sure and uh like i said in terms of this this topic obviously i as the host messed up we had a bit of a glitch in the middle so um if any of the guests feel like you didn't get your full present your full case. You guys are welcome back anytime. We can have a one-on-one -on -one and you, I'll give you all the time to present your case. Okay. Actually, because I, um, I, I had presented, a, I pre prepared a, a long, because um, a lot of the things I've been saying are much easier if you can actually see the pictures of what I'm talking mm. about. And yeah. I had presented a presentation, but um, I, I couldn't use this program. So um, yeah, absolutely. But maybe another time. Another time. Yeah, absolutely. We'll set that up. All right. All right. Cool. Well, okay. I want to say thank you so much to everyone uh, for coming on and sharing their views uh, on this important topic about the Shroud's history <laughs> during this large chunk of time. Right. And, thank you so uh, much for your kindness. Oh, no problem. No problem. Um, all right. Cool. Well, that's it. Um, so I think for the audience next week, um, or actually tomorrow for me, we're going to be looking at the Eastern Orthodox view of veneration of images. And part of that, uh, some people like Pam and Hugh will know, Teddy Pappas is going to be on. She's Eastern Orthodox. She, she's going to be talking about, a little bit about the shroud too. Like, uh, you know, should we venerate the shroud images and stuff? So look forward to that. That will be the next show and have a great week, everyone. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, nice to meet you, Mark. Yeah, thanks. Yeah.